following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, so um, we're still in our Hebrews series, but this week, being Valentine's Day, this last Thursday, it struck me that um, I don't think we've talked about love for a while. So we're going to talk about love. Uh, and first, I want to say a little something about Valentine's Day. And that is, I'll be honest, I think Valentine's Day messes with us a little bit. It's not one of my favorite holidays, partly because I think Hallmark is largely responsible for Valentine's Day. Uh, it's just a great way for car companies to make a whole lot of money. Don't throw things at me if you love Valentine's Day. It's just my opinion. But the other thing about Valentine's Day is that it tells a particular kind of story about what love is. And basically, it breaks love down to being all about feelings. Now, I'm not opposed to feelings. Uh, I like feeling loving, and I like feeling loved. In fact, just to give you an idea of how romantic I can be on Valentine's Day, I sent Sheila um, this card online. You almost make my heart dance, and dancing is forbidden. So... It felt like a good kind of throwback to our Mennonite Valentine's Days. So, so my problem isn't that um, feelings can be part of love. My problem with Valentine's Day, honestly, is that it tends to say love is feelings. And while feelings are part of relationships, this idea that this is what love is, is what bothers me a little bit about Valentine's Day. Because biblically speaking, that's just not the proper way to think of love. So I want to talk about love this morning from a biblical perspective. Uh, So we live in a consumer culture. And what I mean by that is we live in a culture that really stresses to us there are things out there for you to buy, for you to use, for you to consume. So... If my garbage doesn't get picked up like I would like it to get picked up in a timely fashion, or let's just say theoretically they throw the bin off to the side somewhere, I can find a new garbage company because if I don't like what I am consuming, so to speak, from the service they're offering, I can get something new. I can get a new phone company. Anymore with all the competition among cell phones, if you don't like your phone company, there's another phone company out there that wants your service, and you can switch. Uh, If my pizza doesn't have enough bacon, I'm getting a different kind of pizza. That's just the reality of it. And in all these situations, uh, there's a sense in which that's fine. Uh, We're privileged, I think, to live in a culture where we have a lot of choices. We have a lot of options. But in this kind of scenario, everything is conditional. If you please me, I will continue to give you my business. And it's transactional. These are commodities. These are things simply that we buy, that we use, that we own. If they don't please us, we move on to something else. And so once again, if it comes to pizza, it's not that big a deal. I mean, make a good pizza, I'll buy it. The dilemma, I think, is that when we live in a consumer culture, we can begin to view people this way. And we can begin to become consumers of people. And so we'll say, not with so many words, but this is kind of the idea. We'll say this to family and friends or even spouses. If you please me, I will reward you. I'll be good only if you provide something good. I'll stick around only if you make it worth my time. And this is a consumer approach to relationships. Once again, it's entirely conditional. It's transactional. In some ways, people become commodities. I want to surround myself with people in my life who feed me, who fill me, who make me happy, who please me. And if this does not happen, I'll move on. 
I did it with my garbage company. I did it with my phone. I did it with my pizza service. Um, I'll, I'll do it with people. And so living in a consumer culture can tend to bring out of us this sense of consuming people as well. If they don't give us what we want, we simply dump them and move on. So a couple years ago, I read a book called Warm Bodies. It was, uh, it was billed as a zombie romance. And I know most of you are expecting to talk about zombies on a Sunday morning. But it's a story about a zombie apocalypse. But it was written by a guy who grew up in the church. And while he was no longer a Christian, I felt like the story was kind of haunted by this Christian understanding of human nature. And he has a character, uh, a zombie named R. And in this book, these zombies, they're thinking. Uh, they're able to process what's happening with the world. And so through this character, he explains what happened. And here's his summary. So this is this zombie named R speaking. We're just here. We do what we do. Time passes and nobody asks any questions. We may appear mindless, but we aren't. We grunt and groan. We shrug and nod. And sometimes a few words slip out. It's not that different from before. I've never thought of these other creatures walking around me as people. Human, yes, but not people. We eat and we sleep and shuffle through the fog, walking a marathon with no finish line, no medals, and no cheering. We view ourselves the same way we view the living, as meat, nameless, faceless, and disposable. And the book makes clear in this guy's story that the zombie apocalypse didn't happen because of some crazy science experiment or anything like that. He says humanity just gave in and gave up. And they finally started doing in a very visible way what they've always done. And that is simply consumed people around them. He says later, this new hunger demands sacrifice. It demands human suffering as the price for our pleasures, meager and cheap as they are. And like he said before, it's not that different from before. If it's a consumer culture that we live in. Because the reality is, if we live in a scenario where we consume people, we don't do it visibly like shows up in a story like this that's often kind of a parable about human nature. But we do it. We nibble away at people's lives. We take and we take and we take at their expense so that we are fed by something that we must take from them, even at their expense and at their pain. We've talked before about this idea that everybody worships something. And that when you worship, someone is sacrificed. It always boils down to it. When you look at uh, different religions throughout all the world, if you're going to worship, someone is sacrificed. And it will either be someone else or it will be yourself. And we're going to talk more today about what agape love looks like as an act of self-sacrifice. But before we get to that... I just want to look a little bit more about this idea of what it looks like if you're being consumed or you are a consumer. So first of all, if you're trapped in a relationship where you're being consumed, you'll always need to impress the other person because you have to be tasty. So you're going to hide. You're not going to let them see the real you. You're going to try to minimize your flaws. You're going to put on a mask. You're not going to be able to have conversations with people where you say, This is how I feel. This is how I think. This is what's happening inside of me. These are my hidden sins. These are my struggles. You can't do that. 
If you're in a relationship where you're being consumed because you have to be desirable. You have to impress. And so in that kind of relationship, you hide, you put on a brave front, and you never let the other person see something that might not be exactly what they want. If you're in a relationship where you're being consumed, the other thing to note is you'll never be enough for the consumer. The problem isn't you. The problem is that you're with someone who is a consumer of people. You could give them all you want and it will never be enough. That's just the nature of it. C.S. Lewis describes it as an ever-increasing desire for an ever-diminishing return. That's the consumer mentality. It's never enough. And if you are a consumer... You'll never be satisfied. I mean, you'll always demand more than the other person can give. They'll never be good enough for you. You'll always be critical. Nothing will taste just right. If I can stick with my zombie analogy for a little bit. they'll, They'll never say the right things you want them to say and respond in the moment, understand you, and you could go through this. It'll never be enough. And so you'll take and take and take to fill this void. And they can't fill it. And if you're a consumer, uh, you'll also always be the one less invested in the other person. If you're the one consuming, you're not paying the cost of the relationship. Plus, if you're the consumer, you'll move on if it doesn't work out. You'll always be less invested. The other one, the consumed, will always feel the need to give, give, give. Uh, Maybe there's some type of dysfunction there, but maybe it's because they care. They care more than you, so they're willing to give, but you don't care, so you're not willing to give. All you're willing to do is take. So in in pagan cultures, at the time the Bible was written, the gods were consumers of their worshipers. It goes back to their creation stories. The gods made people to serve them. And as you read the literature of the ancient Near East up through the Greeks and Romans, the gods interacted with people so that people could feed them, could serve them, could fill them in some fashion. The gods didn't sacrifice for humanity. Humanity sacrificed for the gods. They must be fed. They gained their power by consuming. And you see in most of those religions, it did end up with human sacrifice because the gods had to be fed. And so when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes on the scene, in fact, even earlier than that, when the Israelite nation is growing and Yahweh in the Old Testament is revealing himself, he is not a consumer God. He doesn't need us to feed him. He's perfect. He's complete. There's not an emptiness or an aching in God. God loves and serves us. And we'll see this manifested in Jesus Christ. And when the Bible talks about language of like, God is a consuming fire, that's not a gluttonous kind of consuming. That just says God's a purifying God. He'll purify the world. He'll purify his people. But he, we don't live to feed him and fill some emptiness in God. So with the introduction of Yahweh and then in Jesus Christ, we see something that was new in all of human history up to that point. God is not a consumer God. And the language the Bible uses that is to say that God is a covenant God. And we see that in the Old Testament. I'm not going to revisit. Scott talked about some of that last week, and we've talked about that before, that God makes covenants with Abraham and Moses and David, etc. 
But a covenant God is the opposite of a consumer God. In fact, you could make the argument that in Jesus, we see that our God is the kind of God who feeds us. We see the symbol of it this morning. Right? The early church was accused of being cannibals because they said, hey, when we do communion, we eat the flesh of God. We drink the blood of God. And the Romans and the Greeks misunderstood that this was spiritually symbolic. And they're like, oh, gross, this is a cannibalistic cult. No, you don't understand. Our God didn't come to consume us. Our God came to feed us, to give us life. Uh, a number of years ago, I was watching something on the History Channel, I think, about uh, around the time of Halloween, and they were talking about the rise of how we got all the crazy stories like werewolves and vampires and zombies and stuff. And the zombie thing is nothing new. It's been around for most of the history of the world. And one of the things this show noted, and this was not a Christian show in any sense of the word, they said they kind of wanted to talk about the Jesus story as a zombie story, like, hey, Jesus came back to life. But even they noted, they said, but there was something different about that story because he didn't come back to life to feed on people. He came back to life to give life. It's an upending of all these other stories and ways that people understood God. So we receive a covenantal, sacrificial love from God, and we see it manifested in Jesus. And one of the promises of Scripture is that as we give our lives to Jesus, we are transformed into his image. That God does a work in us through his word, through his Holy Spirit, through his people. And one of the things that will be transformed is our love. So be our understanding of love and our giving of love. Now this will be a process, right? We're people being rescued out of a consumer way of loving and being moved into a covenantal way of loving. So this is a process. But God, who begins a good work in you, is faithful to continue this work in you. He's going to move us from consumer lovers to covenant lovers. So there's four types of love uh, that the Greeks talked about. And I said in my notes there's four types of love mentioned in the New Testament, but that's not true, and I'll explain why in a second. Uh, When the New Testament was written, there were four common words for love. There were more than this, but these were the big four. One was eros, which simply means erotic love. This is what Valentine's Day celebrates. It's romance, it's sex, it's everything wrapped up in that. There's one called storge, I think I'm saying that right. Uh, this is affection for family. Some say it has to do with manners and courtesy, just common sense about how you respectfully live with other people, especially those close to you. There's phileo, which is a love for friends. And there's agape, which is a self-sacrificial commitment. Paul actually gets clever in Romans 12 and commands philostorgos for all believers, which I think is a new word he kind of coined, put a couple of them together. Now, I think all these loves have a place in the lives of Christians because God is the author of all these loves. So as I focus on agape, I'm not trying to suggest it's not important to wrestle with what it looks like to have these other loves manifest in your life. But But agape stands out. So, for example, the eros love, it doesn't appear in the New Testament. It's never used in the Bible. It's what's celebrated in Song of Solomon, which is clearly a celebration of erotic or romantic love. But it's not mentioned in the New Testament at all. Uh, Neither is storge, 
interestingly enough. And phileo is mentioned 25 times. That's the brotherly love. But agape gets this many. So we're just going to read through them. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just to give you a contrast, in, in the New Testament, agape is the gold standard. This is what we mean when we talk about a Christ-like love, not that the others don't have a place in our life, but if we're asking the question, what is God's love like and what is the kind of love we're shooting for as we're transformed into the image of God? It's agape. So here's a brief definition. Agape is always giving. It devotes total commitment, no matter how anyone may respond. This form of love is totally selfless and does not change whether the love given is returned or not. So it's a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. If you want to read a whole chapter that just kind of shows you what this would look like, read the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. But I happen to like this summary. It's a quote. I don't know where I got it. The truth is that the more intimately you know someone, the more clearly you'll see their flaws. That's just the way it is. This is why marriages fail, why children are abandoned, why friendships don't last. You might think you love someone until you see the way they act when they're out of money or under pressure or hungry, for goodness sake. But love is something different. Love is choosing to serve someone and be with someone in spite of their filthy heart. Love is patient and kind. Love is deliberate. Love is hard. Love is pain and sacrifice. It's seeing the darkness in another person and denying the impulse to jump ship. I like that definition. Denying the impulse to jump ship. Now, this kind of love, by the way, is not an option for Christians. It's commanded. Eros is never commanded of Christians. That doesn't mean, like I said, it's not celebrated in its right context in Scripture, but it's not commanded. Agape is commanded of Christians. John fifteen seventeen. this is my command, agape each other. Ephesians 5.25 reminds me that I am to agape my wife as Christ agape the church. 1 John 4.8, anyone who does not agape does not know God because God is agape. Do we hear this clearly? Anyone who does not agape does not know God. Does not know God. If you claim to be a follower of Christ... And agape love is not part of your life. You're kidding yourself. You are not a follower of Christ. This is a serious teaching. If agape love is not growing in us. Now once again, remember, we are being transformed by the ongoing renewing of our mind and our hearts, etc. So we're being moved from covenant lovers, or I'm sorry, from consumer lovers to covenant lovers. I'm not saying perfection, but I'm saying if we are not being transformed into the image of Christ in such a way that our ability to agape love is not growing in Christ, we've got to ask the hard question, am I following Christ like I think I am? So I want to note five things about this kind of love. And your notes say four, but I was wrong. It's five. First of all, this is a decisional love, not an emotional love. So we're emotional beings. That's part, I believe, of our reflection of the image of God. God's not an emotionless God. Jesus was an emotional person. It's not that emotions are bad things whatsoever. It's just not 
the word the Bible uses when it talks about what agape love looks like. Agape love is about position and commitment and action. Here's what I mean by position. I'll use a boxing analogy. God is in your corner. You give your life to Christ. He is in your corner. He is fighting for you. He is positioned on your side. He's committed to loving you. And the ultimate way that commitment is displayed is through the crucifixion. Our salvation doesn't depend on God's emotions about us any more than it depends about on our emotions about God. Our salvation depends on Jesus giving his life for us and us acknowledging his lordship and giving our lives back to him. Can I just say this clearly? If you have given your life to Christ and you're not feeling it, be at peace. Your salvation is not dependent on your feelings. Your salvation is dependent on the finished work of Christ and your embrace and acceptance of it. I was talking with someone recently who who is really feeling this lack of emotional um, response or emotional connection. And this is a person who lives far away from here. Part of their frustration is it was often portrayed to them is, if you're not feeling it, dude, um, then you must be missing it, salvation in general. And my first thought was, oh, no, 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 no. Your salvation is not dependent on your feelings or your emotions. Your salvation is dependent on the finished work of Jesus Christ and your surrender and acceptance of it. It's an objective reality. Now, is it nice when there are strong feelings that accompany that? Absolutely. But is our salvation dependent on how we feel in a moment? No, because agape love is decisional. So when the Bible then tells us to love others, it's a call to commitment to others, not a call to feelings. It's not divorced from feelings, but it's independent of feelings. Let me just give you an example. Eros is one type of love. Agape is one type of love. Can I experience erotic love for someone without agape love? Sure, let's be honest. We've done it all the time. Is that uncomfortable? You're attracted to someone. They caught your eye. You didn't agape love them. You just wanted them. So you could separate eros and agape. Can you separate agape and eros? Absolutely. We do that all the time, too. I agape people close to me, but I'm not erotically attracted to them. Right? So these, these are independent of each other is the point that I'm trying to make. And when the Bible tells us to agape others... While emotions may be part of our agape call, agape is not dependent on that. It's independent of that. So love your neighbor, which is an agape command, is different from like your neighbor. You don't have to like your neighbor to love your neighbor. Now, it's preferable that you also like your neighbor. But you can love them without liking them. You might find your neighbor to be the most obnoxious person in the world, and you simply don't connect with them, and the last thing you want to do is have them over from a barbecue. Can you still agape love them? Absolutely. And we're gonna, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what that looks like. Let's make it a little more practical. Is love your spouse always the same as like your spouse, married people? 
I want to talk with whoever said, sure. I need some tips. Yeah, Sheila and I have talked about this before. We don't always like each other. But we love each other. How do I know this? We're committed to each other. And we sacrifice for each other. And we do hard work for each other. We wound each other and then build scars together. We All this kind of stuff. How do I know I love my wife? I'm committed to my wife. Now, do I also have emotional feelings for my wife? Absolutely. Uh, I feel like my Valentine's Day card expressed that very nicely. <laughs> and perhaps the most poignant and meaningful times are when Agape and Eros and probably Storge and Phileo, all four of them, probably the most poignant times when all four of them are in unison, like, yeah, that's a little glimpse of heaven on earth. But they're not always in unison. But I never stop Agape loving my wife. It's a call to commitment. Love those who hate you in the Bible is not a command to like those who hate you. Uh, Can I summarize it this way? In the kingdom of heaven, there is no room for any Christian to say, but I don't love them. Love your enemies. That's agape, your enemies, just so we're clear. Do good to them who hate you. Pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. That's agape love. And if we don't know that agape love, we don't know God. There is no room in the kingdom of heaven to say, I do not love you. Now, there is room to say, I don't like you. We could talk about that in Message Plus. I think it's appropriate to be honest with people when relational dynamics are affected and all kinds of things like that. Uh, There might be room to say, I don't, well, there is room to say, I don't eros you. Even I don't phileo, I don't storge, all of these other ones. But agape is a command for us all. Number two, oh, goodness. Uh, This might be a two-parter, folks. Uh, Number two, it's sacrificial. When the love of Christ flows into me and through me, uh, I'm not waiting for people to reciprocate. So let's make this practical. I'm going to go with the marriage analogy again, but we can expand this to friendships, etc., There is a huge difference. Okay, so my wife was gone this last week to visit her family in Florida. Um, And she's coming back on Friday. So what do I do Thursday? Clean. Yes, thank you. Um, So it needed to look semi-civilized by the time she walked back in. So I could do that because when my wife gets home, I want her to walk in the door and go, Oh, wow, look at you. That is so amazing. You're such a good housekeeper. Uh, and Vincent has been warmed and fed. And the laundry's done. And uh, maybe there's even some benefits from that, if you know what I'm saying. Come on, I can make that kind of joke. I'm a married guy. That's not agape love. right? Agape love is, I go, you know what? The way to honor my wife is to have the house presentable when she comes home and make it look like we lived a normal six days without her um, just because I, I want my wife to be able to relax when she walks in the door. She doesn't have to say a word to me. In fact, now that I think about it, I'm not sure that you did. Uh, 
No? Okay. We'll talk about it later. Uh, if, If that was an act of agape love, I need nothing in return from her. Because I didn't do it because I needed a return on my investment. I did it because I wanted to invest. That was my motivation and that was sufficient. And then when that happens... You know what I'm freed from? The anger and depression that I used to experience when Sheila didn't respond in ways that I wanted her to respond. Like, did you notice how amazing I am in your life right now? Those were sporadic in the last 28 years. Did you notice? Let's say she didn't. Okay, a non-agape response goes, fine, I'm not doing that again. If you're not going to notice and give me words of affirmation, I'm just not going to do it anymore. That's a consumer kind of love. That means I did something because I needed something from her in return. A covenant love, an agape love says, you know what? How do I honor my wife? How do I value her? How do I live sacrificially for her? How do I, how do I give to her simply because, number one, she bears the image of God. Number two, I made a covenant with her. I made a covenant. I made a promise. And part of that promise was, I will learn to agape love you like Christ loved the church. And let's just be honest. When Christ loves the church with agape love, do we do a good job of thanking him for what he has done? All God's people said, no. Does he stop loving us? No, the gift remains. Okay, that's agape love. That's sacrificial. It frees me from keeping score. I mean, there's no more charts of how much I've invested versus how much they've invested. And let's broaden this out to friendships as well. I mean, if you're in the kind of friendship where you're like, hey, I paid last meal, you're up. Hey, um, I'm always the one buying gas. Hey, I'm the one always setting up lunches. Hey, I'm the, and you're, you've got this checklist of things where you're investing, and the longer your list grows and the smaller their list remains, the more angry you get, the more resentful you get, the more you're like, well, I don't think we're friends. Okay, that's not agape love. That's a consumer love where you're making an investment and you expect a return. Agape love makes an investment and does not demand a return. It simply says, I will invest in you. I will sacrificially give to you because I am committed to you. I am for you. I am in your corner. I want you to flourish as a human being. I will do this. We could say, I ask them all the time about how they're doing, and they never ask me. Yeah, but that's not why you loved them, right? Right? First Corinthians is clear that love keeps no record of wrongs. No record of wrongs. Love does not keep a balance of what we've given versus what we have been given. We just love. Right? That's the command, just to love. I don't know how to make a whole sermon out of the next three points, but we're going to try to figure it out next week. What's, 
Let me organize my thoughts before I make a final comment. I think it's important in the context of community life to have conversations about things that damage our ability to like each other. I I think the community of faith, the community of Christians, has to have room to do confrontation, to talk about the give and take of relationships, because I think the church is designed for us to give and receive agape love, because giving agape love empties us out. Receiving agape love helps to fill us back up. So I don't want to ignore that in healthy church life, there is a give and a take to agape love. That's the ideal. But what I want us to settle into today, and I think next week as well then, is this idea that God's challenge to us, if we are to show the kind of love Christ gave to us, is for us not to, not to ask that question yet about the give and take and the flow of church life, but simply take a little bit of time to go, okay, what does it look like in my life when I love? Do I display the agape love of Christ? Am I a covenantal kind of person, or am I a consumer? And that, that's something I, I want us to settle into that this week and next week, just to ask that question. We'll talk somewhere down the road about the give and take. But I, I'll be honest, I don't want us to avoid the question of who am I? What kind of person am I? Is the love of Christ real in me? This is a crucial part of our doing life together as a church body. And as part of a witness to a waiting and a watching world, wondering what kind of God is transforming these people. Oh, that kind of God. Uh, Lord, I'm grateful that you are a God who gives us love, that you have modeled love, that we see it uh, perfected in Jesus. We see it in the perfect example of Jesus. And that your promise is that as we give our life to you, you work in us, transforming us, moving us from being consumers to being covenanters. Uh, uh, Lord, that is a vision of a beautiful life in your church, in our families, with our friends. Uh, oh, that, that's the, part of the hope of the glory that you bring, I believe. Uh, the, the vision or the ideal of living with a group of people in which that dynamic is real, uh, that's, that's your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, uh, Lord, uh, convict us and empower us and encourage us in this area, not just for our good, but for the good of those close to us and for the good of your witness in the world. Uh, May your transformation in us be obvious so that no one can walk away from us and wonder, um, hey, has God made a difference in their life? Uh, Oh, no. God has made all the difference, and it looks like this. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.